we uh, gather back to your seats here, I'm going to open our time in prayer. That's a way to get everybody to be quiet quickly, isn't it? All right, Heavenly Father, thank you for the opportunity to be together this morning. We ask for your blessing on our time. I pray that we would hear from you this morning. Uh, Lord, I pray you'd use me. Lord, speak around me even today. Uh, Help me not to get in the way of what you would have communicated to everybody who's here. Lord, I'm thankful for each person who's willing to listen. Lord, set aside our distractions um, so that you would be glorified, that you would be magnified, and that you would do great things in the Firehouse Church in the future. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, welcome everybody. I'm glad you survived the snowpocalypse. And daylight savings. I, ha- I don't like daylight savings. I've messed up for at least a week, so I hope everything goes alright this morning. Um, as you know, we've been uh, teaching through uh, this book, Gospel-Centered Discipleship, by uh, Jonathan Dodson. Um, I guess I could give a little recap that uh, most of you have probably been here and have been reading. Um, so I won't go too in-depth into what we've already talked about. Uh, the way I look at it, uh, what we've learned is that the gospel doesn't stop at the point of salvation. We've learned the gospel applies to your daily decisions. It applies to ongoing discipleship. It applies to your regular relationship with God. But, here's a question. Did he leave you to do all those things alone? Anyone? No. And I know Brad talked last week about the Holy Spirit here to guide us, but today what we're going to talk about is the fact that God has left us the church as well. And so the thrust of the next chapter, which is chapter 6, which you're all diligently reading, I know, for Wednesday night small group, Uh, The thrust of that chapter is that we can think of the gospel and we can think of our conversion to believing the gospel as having three parts. The first part is a conversion to Christ. The second part is a conversion to church. And the third part is a conversion to mission. Now, I'm not one to point fingers at other Christians in America. And I don't really think the author is either. But... uh, He's, he's pretty clear there's some problems in the church in America and in the world and he really points to this and I, I agree that the part of the problem is that many Christians many churches have just taken sort of a one-third approach to the conversion and there's so many people in the church in America who've just kind of quit on the gospel after being converted to Christ and so he has some quotes here. I'm, I'm going to go through some quotes from the past, from the, the chapter that I think were helpful for me. Uh, he says, on page 107, he says, Instead of being church in America, we've fallen into merely doing church. He says, he goes on, We've devolved from being Jesus-centered communities into loose connections of spiritually-minded individuals. I don't know if that resonates with you, but this sort of reminds me of an illustration of uh, uh, this terminology called cafeteria Christianity, which I'm sure some of you have heard about. And of course, when I think of a cafeteria, 
and this probably dates me a little bit. Uh, when I was a young, a young boy, after church on Sunday mornings, many times, the family would take us to the cafeteria for lunch. Anybody else go to the cafeteria for lunch? Rich, I know you, you did, right? Raise your hand. Yeah, a few people. Now, for those of you who are maybe a little bit younger than me and you never actually went to the cafeteria after church, let me describe how it goes. You show up and you get your tray, and then you start to go through this long, long line with all of these items. And you say, oh, I want a little coleslaw, and I want a little bit of uh, macaroni and cheese. I never understood why the macaroni and cheese is with the vegetables. What exactly is vegetable about macaroni and cheese? I don't know, but it was there, and you'd get that, and you'd be like, fried okra, no thank you, and you'd keep moving along, and you'd get a chopped steak, which was really just like a hamburger patty that sat in a bunch of juices for a long time. It wasn't very good. I don't know why you get it, but you get that. And then from way back in the back of the line, your mom would go, get something green. And you get down the line, you grab some lime jello and put it on your tray and keep going, right? No, I'm, I'm sorry if my mom hears this recording. I did actually you know, get salads and vegetables sometimes. Um, but that's what Christianity has become in many ways in America. Is I'm going to take a little bit of this and a little bit of that and no okra and I'll get something that kind of is green but isn't really green, right? And I think that in America, churches have capitalized on this because we're all a bunch of entrepreneurs and we're looking to make the bucks. And so churches kind of offer that. They say, we'll just do a lot of things and let people just kind of pick and choose what they want to do. And some people even take that to an extreme and they go to this church for this and they go to this church for that and they go to this church for this and they don't get anything green, right? Nothing you wouldn't want to do that's, you know, uncomfortable. And that's really a tempting path for churches to take. I think it could be really tempting for us as a firehouse here to say, we just want to do things that people are really going to like. Let's make it really fun and I don't want anything green that people would have to sort of you know, chew on and digest. But instead, I want to tell you that here at the firehouse, speaking on behalf of the pastors and the leaders, we would rather know and follow what Jesus meant for the church to be not what our culture says it should be. And so in this book, the author, he uses three scripturally based illustrations about what the church should look like. He talks about the body, he talks about a harvest, and he talks about a building. And I think it's cool that there's this diversity of illustrations that really indicate what the church is like. And you can, there's others too that he doesn't even talk about. Like he talked about the church as an army, he talked about the church as a family. Um, and I think that just shows how dynamic the church can really be. Now, rather than go deeply into each of these illustrations, I'll uh, touch briefly on the body and the harvest illustrations, and then as you might expect, based on my profession as an architect, I'm going to spend a little bit more time talking about a building and that analogy. And so I'll, in advance, offer my apologies to any doctors or any farmers who might be in the audience who would be interested in the other ones. I don't think we have any farmers except maybe Jeff. Have you seen his garden? It's huge. It's like the size of my house. So anyway, we'll dive right into these analogies. The first one is the body. And really, this is spread out scripturally through a number of verses in Colossians and Ephesians, and you'll see these in the chapter. But I think if we're just going to sort of simply summarize it, it's that we can think of Jesus as the head, and the church is the body, and the body responds to what the head is directing it to do. 
And so we serve the head, we grow together like a body, and we work in unison. It's pretty straightforward. Then you would say, well, why the church? I mean, Jesus could have chosen any organization to carry out his mission. It could have been like a franchise or a commune or a pyramid scheme or a corporation or a conglomerate. I don't even know what a conglomerate is. That's just a fun word to say. But instead, Jesus chose the local church. Why? Well, the reason was that he intended for the church community to be an illustration of his message to the world. And so the author puts it really strongly, right, to kind of counter this idea of cafeteria Christianity in the church. On page 109 he says, Jesus did not die on a bloody cross to gather a loose collection of souls bound for heaven, but to create a new community as proof of his gospel to the world. And then he goes on to say how this kind of church should behave. He says, a Jesus-centered community invites non-Christians into its community. And so when we get down the list here to the building, I'll, I'll talk about that a little bit more. Let's move on to the next illustration, which is the harvest. The key passage on the illustration of the harvest is Luke chapter 10, where Jesus says, Ask the Lord of the harvest to send out workers. And so God sows the seeds of the gospel and they take root and we grow together in righteousness as Christians. The author says, We need encouragement, correction, rebuke, empathy, prayer, truth-telling, and promise-reminding. That's like a mouthful. Sounds like a lot of hard work. Kind of what you might expect from a farmer. Jeff? He's not even here. Sorry. So one challenge I've taken to heart when I think about this illustration is the idea that we have to accomplish the, the quote-unquote one-anothers. You say, what are the one-anothers? Well, if you kind of go into the scripture and you look, there's all of these things that we're supposed to do to one another. We're supposed to love one another, serve one another, be gracious to one another, pray for one another. And so where would you expect to get those done? At home by yourself? Or at the bowling alley? No, probably not. You would expect to get those done at the church, and that was Jesus' point. And so a specific example of one of these one another's is in Matthew 19, 19, where Jesus uh, reaffirms what the Old Testament says. He says, love your neighbor as yourself. And so if you don't put yourself in the position, a difficult position, of rubbing shoulders with other people, whether they're Christians or not Christians, how can you possibly expect to learn to love them? And I would say it's actually impossible to love those with whom you have no contact. And so the author's quote, he says, To be blunt, disciples should regularly sacrifice privacy, convenience, and comfort in order to love and serve others. See, those are things that I think we, especially as Americans, we can hold dear. We can hold on to that privacy, that convenience, and that comfort. But you're going to have to sacrifice those things if you want to serve others. And when we do that, he goes on, he says, it exposes that we typically have a functional worship of privacy, convenience, and comfort. And so that's maybe a question I'd ask you to think about is, how are you doing in sacrificing privacy, convenience, and comfort? And now we're going to move on to the building. We're going to come to the payoff here. And I think the best verses 
that describe this, and these are actually some of my favorite verses, and you'll see why here, come from Ephesians chapter 2, verses 19 to 22. And you'll see, I I read these verses and I get really, really excited. And I don't really understand, actually, when you read the chapter in the book, he doesn't use this passage. I'm not sure why. He has some other good verses, but this is one that really sticks out to me, so I'm going to talk about it today. He says, Apostle Paul, speaking to the church, says, consequently, we go, oh, time out, consequently what? Well, so that we don't have to hear, go back. I'll tell you what he was talking about. Consequently, he says, being converted to Christ through the gospel. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and aliens, but fellow citizens with God's people and members of God's household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. Now I'm getting excited. In him the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple to the Lord. And in him you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. See, this is my kind of language. I start geeking out on buildings when I read this kind of passage. Right, did, did anybody uh, read the Faith Walkers Journal this week from Neva Whitney? And she was talking about how she cares for her husband's sheep. Her husband's like super into sheep. And she stands there and she said, what did she say? Like, I stand there and I look at the sheep like he would and I have no idea what I'm looking at. But I do it because I know he'd like it. That's how my wife is. We like go into buildings. And I'm like, look at that! And she's like... Okay. <laughs> and she's very supportive of how I can get kind of geeky on buildings. And so you can see why I might get kind of geeky on this passage. So I'm going to break it down for you here. And I brought a prop to talk about this. So uh, there's a few key words in this passage. The first one is the word cornerstone. And I got a picture of a, well... That's actually not a cornerstone. I mean, it's a stone on the corner, but it's not the cornerstone. And why is it not the cornerstone? Well, because the cornerstone is at the bottom. And no one would see it if it was at the bottom. It would be right at ground level, and it would get kicked and scuffed. And they wanted to make a point here with this one. So this isn't really the cornerstone. I just sort of like the picture. But the cornerstone... Is really when you think about modular building materials. Ooh, that's a that's a geeky architecture word. Modular. This is a modular, right? This thing is in a module and it stacks together, right? So stone or brick or anything like that, like this building. It's modular construction. So whenever you have modular construction, it has to start somewhere, right? The mason, who's the guy who sets stones and bricks, right? He doesn't just come and like, oh, oh there, and just start kind of stacking stones, right? No, he starts at the corner because you can get a nice angle. And from that corner, everything goes off in lines and goes up in rows, and the building is built, and everything relates back to that cornerstone. It's the most important stone in the entire building that has stones in it. So the second word that I get really excited about when I read this passage is the word foundation. You're going, what is that? <laughs> Matt Simpson's back there excited because this is an engineering drawing that I did myself. See, I couldn't really show you a picture of the foundation because we don't see the foundation because the foundation is where? Underground. That's right. I mean, I could show you a picture of one in construction. You'd be like... 
What? <laughs> so this is a drawing. This is interestingly, this is a drawing I've done recently. I'm, I'm hoping to do a little expansion on my house, and this is the foundation at my house. And I won't explain it to you. It just kind of looks cool and architectural-ish. But a foundation is what undergirds the entire building. And if you do not have a foundation, what happens to a building? It eventually is going to fall down. Now, a little example of this. My house is about 100 years old, and I've done a little bit of work on it over the past several years. And at one point, we were in the basement, and there was this wall, and it wiggled, and it curved. And I was going, what is going on with that wall? But I didn't want it there. We were kind of sort of renovating this room. And I said, okay, I'm going to tear it out. And so as I ripped all the plaster off, I realized the wood members, the studs that hold it up, were just kind of dangling. Well, it's because they had built this wall on the dirt, not on a foundation. What happens when wood comes in contact with dirt over time? It rots and really gross things grow and it just disintegrates. So there was all these pieces of wood just hanging there because they were hanging from the ceiling. I was in the basement. They were hanging there and if they hadn't been hanging there, the wall would have just fallen over. Right? So that's why you need a foundation. You need something, everything to rest on that will keep it sturdy, that will keep it from rotting. And that's what the foundation is in this passage. We see that the foundation is the apostles and the prophets and the word of God. And then the next, the next building term there <clears throat> that I really like, and you might get this one a little more, is joined together. So I have another image here. Joined together. Now, usually, you've got to have something to keep the bricks together, right? Like if the mason just comes and stacks a bunch of bricks together, doesn't do anything, and they're just a pile, what happens when you do this? It falls over, right? And so you have to have something that joins the bricks together, and that's mortar, which I think is this amazing, mortar and concrete are this amazing thing that God had planned out, even though they're not, you know, plants or humans, I think God really figured it out, because it's this great chemical reaction between really simple stuff, and you put water in it, and it basically turns into this glue, like that's the best way I can describe it, and when it hardens, you can't push that wall over anymore, everything is joined together. And so in the church, we take the analogy back to the church, what is that, what do you suppose that is? It's, I think it's the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is what joins us together. You know, Brad talked about that last week. We have this mortar and the Spirit binds us all together so that we begin to make this building that someone can't come and just knock over with their two fingers. And so then the last, the last thing is, who are the bricks? We're the bricks. It's us who are converted by the gospel into Christ. We take our order from Him, the cornerstone, and we're joined together by the Spirit into the church. Now, for what purpose? Is it just to have this building thing so we're not sitting out in a lot somewhere? Well, I have a little video clip I'm going to show here. Um, Now, I have to give a disclaimer. This is from a movie. I won't even say what the movie is because I don't necessarily recommend you watch this movie. Um, I came across this clip actually in an architecture lecture when I was in school many years ago. Um, And the guy's not even really talking about uh, what we're talking about. But I think what he says, I could just repeat what he says or I could have him say it. And there's great music and great pictures of buildings. So uh, we're going to play the clip. And then we'll, we'll talk about it, so. 
the job properly. If they just this once get it right, they can actually lift the human spirit, take it to a higher place. What is this? A brick. Good. What else? A weapon. <laughs> Louis Kahn said, even a brick wants to be something. A brick wants to be something. It aspires. common, ordinary brick wants to be something more than it is. Wants to be something better than it is. And that is what we must be. See you on Friday. I think that's a good example of what we're supposed to be as a church. We could all just be bricks out there. But instead, God has designed it that we come together and we create this amazing architecture. What does the verse say? A holy temple in the Lord. And we're not meant to be alone. We're not meant to sit quietly to do nothing. We're meant to be part of this. But... Merely being together in the church is not our ultimate goal. Remember, let's go back to what I said at the beginning. Coming part of the church is only the second of the three conversions. And so that third conversion is to mission. See, what would be the point of a church that was not seeking to share the good news with others? To get the message out that you can have a right relationship with the creator of the universe? And so when we work together as these living stones or living bricks, if you want to think of it that way, we can speak effectively together about Jesus' work in us. And doing this is the mission we've been called to. See, we display Christ's holiness, and we call others from outside the church to join in, to experience the gospel and the conversions we we ourselves have experienced. Isn't that great? Isn't that how a building is built? one brick at a time and so as someone receives that conversion and receives the gospel they have the chance to become part of that church part of that holy temple that building that God is building and so we say okay so if the church is supposed to be on this mission and we're supposed to be part of this church and we're going to do this all together what does this mean to the firehouse as we go forward into the future well I think it's unfortunate in some ways, and maybe it's fortunate in others, that we find ourselves in a challenging, challenging culture. And so the work of the church in general and the work of the firehouse specifically is becoming increasingly important as we stand in starker and starker contrast to what the world around us looks like and what it espouses as views. And I think to explain better what I mean about what is the culture and what is going on and what is the point of the church, I'm going to quote from my friend, his name is Lars Dunberg. He used to be the president of the International Bible Society, or the people who published that NIV Bible you have sitting in front of you. And he's been a worldwide missionary to the church. 
And I think he gives a very poignant sort of description of our situation as a church. So I'll quote it here. He says, Society has become drastically meaningless. People try to pack as much as they can in the 70s to 80 years because at the end their only future in their minds is being buried six feet under and turning into dust or transform into ash at a cremation and be scattered to the wind. If life ends after only a few years, what is the meaning of it all? People commit suicide because they cannot handle the meaninglessness of life. I would certainly feel the same if I didn't know that the Christian life is the greatest way to live and the only way to die. This generation is not drawn to our churches by our eloquent preachers, our elevator-type worship music, or movie theater-like seating arrangements. They will only be drawn to us by one thing. Are we the people of meaning in whom people without meaning can find a glimmer of hope for the future? Our society has never quite been in the mess it is now. There are almost as many single parent families as married families. The rate of divorce is more than 50% whether you claim to be a Christian or not. Youth crime and shooting people to death for no particular reason seem to be reported on a daily basis. AIDS and drug usage is rampant. People have lost their sense of direction. They seem to be more self-centered and more concerned about their known rights and less about their duties. The former Prime Minister of Britain, Tony Blair, said, quote, We enjoy a thousand material advantages over any previous generation, and yet we suffer, suffer a depth of insecurity and spiritual doubt they never knew. End quote. And I would add, there's a comedian, Louis C.K., and he quipped, Everything is amazing! And nobody is happy. Lars goes on. He says, Though most people have turned away from Christianity, they have not replaced it with an alternative set of ideas that gives them a satisfying sense of identity or purpose. This is a fertile season for the gospel. People are living in a culture that cannot provide answers to the fundamental questions about meaning and purpose. And a culture that cannot answer the questions is a culture that is open to the answer. We know Christianity works. It does not just work because Christ is the truth, but because Christ works in a radically different way to other religions. Other religions expect changes in behavior to lead to a change of heart, working from the outside in. Christ works from the inside out. The scripture says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, they are a new creation. The old is past, the new has come. See, I agree with Lars. I think our culture desperately needs to hear the message of Jesus. And so, if you wonder why we at the Firehouse emphasize and will continue to emphasize the gospel, it's because we see this church is called by God to reach the neighbors with the most important message on the earth. And so, we're going to do this not on our power, but as our mission statement says, with Jesus, letting the Holy Spirit guide us. See, we're not a social club. We're not a gathering of individuals with common hobbies, although we do like to have fun and spend a lot of time together. I had a blast with you guys this weekend at the men's conference. Instead of having fun and and doing those things and, and just sort of hanging out, we're on a mission. Our purpose is to make Jesus' glory known through the gospel to those who do not yet know him.
So, now I want you to ask yourself and have a little moment of introspection here and say, what do I need to do today about this? Well, I think it depends on where you are in this journey of conversion to the gospel. You've experienced all three conversion of the gospel. Maybe you're on the fence between conversion to the church and conversion to the mission. I think it's great if you're there. I encourage you to keep preaching the gospel to yourself and ask the Spirit for ways you can be involved. We're we're in the process of launching ministry teams here at this church, and I want to encourage you to throw yourself into those. Not because you want to work and win favor with God or with other people, but I encourage you to do it as a means to express your love for God and as a means to get the good news to the people who don't know about it. Now, maybe you haven't experienced all three conversions. Maybe you would put yourself in that camp of being a one-third Christian. Maybe you received the gospel for your salvation and you haven't put any legs on it. So maybe you need to be baptized and make a public declaration of faith and throw your hat in the ring with Christ in front of everybody. And by the way, if you want to do this, we're going to be having baptisms on April 7th, so you can talk to me or the pastors or somebody else if you're interested in doing that. Or beyond baptism, maybe you haven't fully converted the gospel because you're wrapped up in the pursuit of hobbies and pleasure, or maybe you're just looking for the good life, whatever that is to you. Or maybe you find yourself church shopping, but what you're probably really doing is looking for a little bit of this and a little bit of that and something green like jello that is fun to eat. Maybe you're single and you're hoping to marry. And your ideal spouse is somebody who's sold out to the church and to the mission. But maybe if you do a little introspection, it's easy for you to see that you're not fully converted yourself. So if any of these things describe you, what can you do? And I would say repent to God and let His grace motivate you to complete your conversion to the church and your conversion to the mission. I would encourage you to step it up and be a man or a woman who's going to go after the gospel with all your heart. Commit to this church because you're here. Start prioritizing that small group. Or maybe go for the first time to the one you thought about but you were too afraid or too tired or too lazy on Wednesday night. I encourage you to steal yourself to sacrifice your comfort, your security, your privacy, your ambitions. And do it for the sake of those who don't know about God's great gift in the gospel. But lastly, maybe you don't count yourself as a believer of Christ. And I want to reiterate as we have before and we do every time, that you're welcome here and this church is a safe place for you to encounter the Bible and make an informed decision about Christ. But again, I'm going to take this opportunity in front of you today. If you find yourself in that camp, I want to remind you that the only way, the only way to have a right relationship with God is to recognize that Jesus Christ, God's Son, came to earth to tear down the ladders that we build to get to Him, or as Lars said, to work from the inside out. You can receive the free gift of salvation today if you want. This gift was purchased by Jesus dying in our place, taking the punishment of death that we deserve, and He grants us life in heaven with God for eternity. And all you have to do, it's really simple, all you have to do is acknowledge your need for His mercy, turn from your life of sin, 
and accept the free gift. So wherever you're at today, I guess my prayer and my hope in, in talking to you is that you will be converted by the gospel into a new life. Let's pray. Father, we're, we're blessed by you. Lord, we're, we're blessed to, to be here as part of a church that's seeking to rise up to be a holy temple to you. And Lord, we're thankful for all of the other churches that meet in this neighborhood, in this city, in this state, in this country, in the world that are doing the same thing. Um, but Lord, we want to be faithful to you where we're at. We want to be faithful and take our conversion to its fullest. We want to be converted to your Son. We want to be converted to the church. We want to be converted to your mission. And Lord, wherever anybody is at today, I pray that you would work in their lives. But if if they just need to be converted to the mission, they're part of what we're doing as a church, but they want to step up and be part of it, Lord, I pray you would break down the barriers and help them to step up and do that, Lord. Or if they're uh, needing to be baptized or needing to, to step up and make a conversion to be part of this church or be part of this family, um, Lord, they do that. And Lord, for anyone who doesn't know you, I pray you'd work in their lives that they would know that they could pray and say, Father, I'm a sinner. I recognize... The gift of your Son, Jesus, is the only way to atone for my sin. And I receive Him as my Lord and Savior today so that I can follow you into this path of conversion in the Gospel. Lord, be with us and guide us. Help us to take this message to the neighborhood, not for our glory, God, but for your glory. Help us to be bound together as a church by your Holy Spirit that we would take all of our order and direction from your Son, the chief cornerstone. And pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, thank you for coming today. I'm glad you all were here. I hope you have a great rest of the weekend. Uh, Stay warm out there in that blizzard. And we'll see you next week.